Hi friends! Welcome to episode 65 of The 5 Buy, your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews and a proud member of the Inside Voices Network. In this episode, Mason discusses Sid Saxon's pencil game Extra, Sarah assembles a group of workers and the villagers, Christy rolls and writes in Roll to the Top, and I build an industrial revolution empire in Brass Birmingham. But first, Meeple Lady unifies Japan in Sekigahara. Sekigahara, The Unification of Japan is a two-player game published by GMT Games in 2011. The Battle of Sekigahara, fought in 1600, is an important battle in Japanese history, one that unified the nation under the Tokugawa family for more than 250 years. In this game, players take one side, either as Ishida, Mitsunari, defender of the child heir, or as Tokugawa Aiyasu, Japan's most powerful daimyo. Sekigahara plays out for seven weeks, with each week consisting of two movement and battle phases for each player. The game comes with 119 wooden pieces, which you'll need to sticker yourself. There's a lot of stickering, but it isn't too bad as the wooden pieces are substantial enough and it's not too hard to align the stickers with the block edge. Ishida's forces are yellow, while Tokugawa's forces are black. Sekigahara also comes with 110 cards for each player, as they each have their own deck to draw from. Lastly, there's a mounted map, a rulebook, and a handy-dandy player aid for each person. The game isn't difficult to learn compared to other war games. The game lasts about 3 hours, but the time goes by quickly because there's so little downtime. There is constant movement on the board, and you're always strategizing your next move or defending your armies. In a nutshell, Sekigahara is a card-driven war game that involves blocks on the board, which represents a unit of warriors that corresponds to that daimyo. You're marching your forces across Japan to defeat your opponent's leader and using cards in your hand to deploy warriors and inflict war casualties. The cards are suited, and their symbols must match the warrior block you're deploying. The absolute coolest thing about this game is the hidden information. Well, semi-hidden information. Your warrior blocks are facing toward you, and your opponent's blocks toward them. You can see this giant formation of blocks marching toward you, but you don't always know how strong the warriors are and which leaders accompany them. At the start of each week, players must play a card to bid for turn order. If your card has the highest number, you get to decide if you want to go first or second during that week. When it's your turn and if you play zero cards, you can discard any number of cards and redraw from your deck, or you can move exactly one stack. If you discard one card, you can move three stacks. If you discard two cards, you can move all your stacks. Additionally, you can muster blocks from your recruitment box in place of a stack movement. The recruitment box is filled with a specific number of blocks at the start of each round, and they just sit there until they're recruited. Cards also come into play during the movement phase, each stack has a base movement of one space, highways, leadership from a leader, castle, or capital, and a force march from discarding a card will give you movement bonuses, while the size of your stack will negatively affect your movement total. The larger the army, the slower they'll move. And to get a leader bonus, you'll actually have to show a leader from your stack, which can make for some revealing moments. When you enter a space with your opponent's block, the movement stops. If you have four times as many forces as they do, their block is overrun and it gets removed from the game. Otherwise, battle occurs. When players battle, the attacker deploys the first block using a card with a matching symbol. And this is why cards are so important, because you can't deploy a block unless you have the matching symbol in your hand. The battle continues until one side 
declines further deployments. Then the impact is calculated. For every 7 points worth of impact, an opponent removes 1 block from the game, and the losing side also removes 1 block. For every 2 blocks removed, that side gains 1 card. Both players then redraw for every card used in battle. When the two phases are done, the week ends, and the reinforcement phase begins. Players discard half their cards, draw 5 cards, and draws blocks from their back to add to the recruitment area. There are also various locations on the map that when controlled either give you more cards at the start of the week or more blocks to add to your recruitment. The game immediately ends if the Tokugawa block is destroyed, or the Ishida block or the Toyotomi disc is destroyed. If neither of these things happen after 7 weeks, victory points are calculated. 2 victory points per castle, and one victory point per research location to whoever controls it, and the person with the most points wins the game. Sekigahara is so much fun to play. The combat is very in your face, and you have to make really tough decisions about how you want to spend your cards. You need a lot of cards to move around the board quickly and to be successful in battle, but you also need the right type of cards to be able to deploy your warrior block. If you're looking for a great introduction to war games and have a few hours to spend, Sekigahara is just delightful. The game is visually appealing, and the blocks and use of suited cards make the game accessible to many types of gamers. The game mechanics are simple and streamlined, but there's so much strategy as well as history in the game. I immensely enjoyed the hidden information aspect of it. And that's Sekigahara! This is Meeple Lady for the Fibi. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening! Bye! Sometimes board games come into our lives because we seek them out. Other times they are unsolicited and they come to us through friends and family, or we encounter them in some other way. Last year, one of my friends was planning to go to Essen and someone had tipped him off that Christy likes roll and rights. So he offered to mule a game for me called Roll to the Top, and I said yes based on genre alone. Roll to the Top was designed by Peter Yaustra and Corne von Mursel and published by Kuali. The art is by Stephen Chu. The game comes with notepads depicting various structures such as the Eiffel Tower or a pyramid. The group decides on a building and each player gets their own sheet of paper with that building on it. The building is made up of empty squares that you fill in with numbers according to the group's die rolls over the course of the game. The goal of the game is to be the first person to fill in your entire board. Not every roll and write is a race-based design in that sense, and I think Roll to the Top does it well. There are several dice in the game, a d4, a d6, a d8, a d12, and a d20. Rolling these dice is going to determine the numbers that you can add to your board. There is also an additional d6 with some symbols on it that gets rolled every turn. As Ben Wyatt from Parks and Recreation would say, this is the die you roll to see how many dice you roll. The number of dice goes up and down throughout the game, and the person whose turn it is gets to decide which die to add, remove, or swap. This is an okay way of making sure that you'll have different choices to make throughout the game, and it does add a touch of interaction if you want to take other people's boards into account when you make that decision. However, it can feel a little fiddly trying to remember who rolled the dice last, which turn that dice management symbol applies to, and so on. At times, it can feel like you're paying a little too much attention to what is essentially an arbitrary way of changing the number or selection of dice each turn. Similar to other games such as Quicks and Welcome 2, turns are communal in the sense that anyone can use the current die roll. But unlike those games, you're never forced to take anything that you don't want to take. 
You also don't take any specific penalty for not being able to take die results. This just happens to be a turn where your opponents are probably making more progress than you. The idea of the game is to build your structure up from the bottom. You can start with any number, so let's say that Leslie Nope starts one of her columns with a 4. The next square above that has to be equal to or greater than 4, and so on for the whole column. So if you had a small column with 3 squares in it, the ascending numbers could be 458, or 477, or 444, etc. You can write down numbers from individual dice as they are rolled, or you can add dice together. So if someone rolls a 1, a 2, and a 3, you could fill in 3 squares by taking all of those numbers individually. But let's say you can't take anything below a 3. Then you could add the 1 and the 2 and write down two 3s, or add them all together to get a single 6. Ideally, you want to take dice separately instead of adding them together. That way you can make faster progress. But the ability to add them when you need to really reduces the number of unfun turns where you can't take anything and it adds a nice layer of decision-making to a pretty light game. For example, say you're working two areas of your board, a higher number area and a lower number area. If the dice give you a moderately high number that you can't quite use and a couple of lower numbers, you'll have to decide whether you want to use the lower numbers and waste the higher number, or add them together in order to work on your higher area. Roll to the Top is easy to teach new players, even if they are not very experienced with gaming in general. I found that beginners can advance to the harder boards pretty quickly, as long as you're around to answer a few can I do this type questions. The player count is pretty flexible. As with most roll and writes, it doesn't make a huge difference how many players you have. Roll to the top is very portable. All you need is a handful of dice, a few of the sheets, and something to write with. It has decent replayability with the different structures you can do, and those structures do have an effect on your strategy. The version that's currently available is already laminated, and it comes with some other boards that were sold separately when the base game was first released. I haven't played with those boards, but they function as variants. The last thing I want to mention is that similar to Guns Shown Clever, there is a free online version of Roll to the Top that has you playing against an AI or other people. I doubt the addiction to this one will be quite as serious as Guns Shown Clever, but it's very playable and works pretty well. The URL for that is RollToTheTop.com. So now that I've burned a few minutes or hours of your life, you can thank me or roast me at D6CMarie on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. The Industrial Revolution is happening in England, with people leaving their farms to find work in the city, where factories have begun popping up. Along with coal and iron production, industries of pottery, cotton, and manufactured goods have changed the country's economy. And with new waterways and railroads for transportation, these goods are more easily making their way to merchants eager to sell them. Friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's talk about Brass Birmingham, the sequel to Martin Wallace's original Brass from 2007. Birmingham was released in 2018 by Roxley Games, with Gavin Brown and Matt Tolman helping to reimagine Wallace's classic economic game. In Brass Birmingham, you're an entrepreneur building your empire during the Industrial Revolution. You'll oversee the development of industries through the canal and rail ages, watching some prosper while others go obsolete. On your turn, you'll perform any two of six possible actions. You'll discard one card for each action, whether it's building a canal or railroad, developing your industries, building a factory, selling goods, taking a loan, or scouting for location and goods cards. As you expand your network of transportation, 
You'll ship your goods to merchants and build up the income needed to construct more factories and add more connections to your network. At the end of the canal age, you'll score points based on the industries you've put on the board and any connecting network of routes. After resetting the board, the rail age is played the same way with a few additional rules. The most points wins. I loved Brass Birmingham the first time it hit the table, and it's gotten better every time I've played it. I appreciate how its hand management, network building, and economic mechanisms fit together so neatly. I enjoy its deceptively simple gameplay. I love that every game is different, depending on where the merchants are placed, which cards you draw, and what your opponents do. Since I haven't played the original, I can't make any comparisons between the two versions. I'm not a student of this era's history either, so I can't verify how accurate it is. But I do know this. Like most of the heavier games I enjoy, Brass Birmingham features a smooth and straightforward turn structure that belies its rich and deep gaming experience. Take an action and discard a card, then do it again. That's your turn. Of course, as the game progresses, you'll have to make increasingly difficult decisions as you attempt to build your industries and use your network as efficiently as possible. Brass Birmingham is more than just placing your industry tiles on the board, though. You're also trying to sell resources at just the right time to take advantage of market conditions. Once you and your opponents begin connecting to each other's networks and open up paths to merchants, the game intensifies as you vie for those first-time selling bonuses. For example, if I build a coal mine when there are empty slots on the coal market, then that coal gets sold immediately and I flip over the tile, which means I'll score points at the end of the age. The same goes for the iron market. And the canals and rails you build score you points based on the industry tiles you've sold and connected to. Like other Martin Wallace games, you don't start with a lot of money, and it's almost a foregone conclusion that you'll be taken a loan, especially early in the game. Even a late game loan isn't the end of the world, but it's still better to get your recurring income going as soon as possible. You can build industries early, but you could also develop them, which grants you access to the higher scoring tiles by removing tiles from your player board. Since certain industries go obsolete after the Canal Age, you may want to build industries that will still be around in the Rail Age, thus giving you two opportunities to score them. While you develop industries, however, another player may swoop in to build in that prime location before you do. Or perhaps they're already connected to a merchant and sell first, thus taking away a beer you needed to complete your own transaction. Or maybe they're building a lot of railways to heavily populated cities and setting themselves up for a big amount of end-of-round scoring. It's this tension of trying to time your actions just right and responding to what your opponents do that drives the game. I love this indirect player interaction. Trying to figure out the best way to use your actions can be a brain burner, but thankfully, I've never encountered anyone that suffered from a crippling case of analysis paralysis. Like other great games, you never feel like you have enough time to do exactly what you want. Brass Birmingham rewards those who plan carefully but it also rewards those who have a plan B and C and D and E for those all too often times when your opponents take away your options. Now the game isn't perfect. While the art is beautiful, especially on the night theme side, it can be difficult for players with vision issues. Likewise, the iron, coal, and beer rules can be a bit fiddly, even for veteran players. For example, iron doesn't require a network connection, but coal does. Beer is required for selling certain items and for building a double rail, but you can't use beer from a connected market for the double rail. Your own beer teleports to you to complete a sale, but not your opponent's. It's these rules that typically trip up new players, and I usually need a refresher if I haven't played the game in a while. Despite these minor gripes, I absolutely love Brass Birmingham. It was one of my favorite games of 2018, and I've played it even more in 2019. Don't be afraid of the hype train that plowed full steam ahead for this game. It's definitely worthy of all the accolades.
Brass Birmingham is a modern classic. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about extra exclamation point. You already know that I love Sid Saxon. You already know that I love pencil games. But did you know that I really love Sid Saxon pencil games? Now, if you didn't know any of this, I can't talk about extra exclamation point and Saxon in my allotted time here, so hit pause and go and Google Sid. If you're a 5 by listener and you're not familiar with his work, you either actually are and just don't know it, or you owe it to yourself to go find out. He's one of the true originals, an all-time great. If there was a Mount Rushmore of games designers, he'd be on it. Saxon wrote and designed a ton of pencil games, though most of them weren't packaged in a single game retail box in his lifetime. Sid was a regular contributor to Games Magazine from the late 70s through the late 90s, and writing games for magazines is a niche subgenre that requires a very specialized skill set and outlook on games and their design. There's a great archive of his articles collected by Sid Saxon superfan Bob Claster, which I'll link to in the show notes. If you don't own Sid's seminal 1969 book, A Gamut of Games, I would strongly urge you to pick up a copy of it. You'd be set for games on a desert island with this book, pencil of paper, a deck of cards, and some dice. One of the pencil games from Gamut of Games eventually became today's topic, Extra! Exclamation point. But like so many Saxon titles, there are multiple editions and different versions with different rules. The original published version in Gamut is called Solitaire Dice, and it's fundamentally just a solo game. If you've played Can't Stop, it has some of the same basic ideas. Without doing deeper research, I'd surmise that since Can't Stop comes out 10 years later, it's likely a fleshed-out multiplayer version of some of the ideas from Solitaire Dice. They're enough alike that Eagle Griffin published a retail version actually called Can't Stop Express, but we'll get into that a little bit later. There's an 80s German version called Choice that features a cartoon Albert Einstein on the cover for some inexplicable reason. And then in 2011, Schmitzbiel reworked some of the scoring and released it as part of their little plastic box roll-and-write line called Extra! Exclamation point. The exclamation point is, I'm assuming, important, but I'll drop it for now. In Extra, you roll five dice and pick two pairs to mark on your sheet. You're working to fill up lines of like numbers each roll, much like Can't Stop. You also put the extra die aside. See, that's why it's called extra, because there's an extra die you don't use every round. And mark it on the side of your sheet. The game timer is clocked by the extra die, so after eight or so uses of that number, your game is over. You do for sure want to block out all three of your extra dice columns to get the maximum number of turns. Continuing this legacy as a solo game, Everyone plays at once from a single die roll, and your choices have no effect on any other player. This is truly a multiplayer solitaire game, but in the best possible way. Player count on the box is 1 to 6, but theoretically you could organize an infinite number of players to compete using the same set of dice. At a point beyond about 12, I think you'd start to have players that made the exact same dice choices, there's not really a tiebreaker, which would be sort of a bummer. Rounds are short enough that in this hypothetical tournament setting, you could play multiple times to a set combined score to prevent ties or something like that. If you do organize a massive game of Extra, let me know. I'd like to know how it goes. Extra is a great example of tactical mitigation for input randomization. Every term, you have a problem to solve, compounded by the consequences of your previous choices. This is not a game you'll chit-chat during because you're all playing at once and trying to maximize the same set of dice. Simultaneous play sets Extra apart from the original choice edition rules and goes a long way to eliminating luck from the game. Everyone's using the same input set, so no one has an advantage. If you were super serious about running a tournament, I think you could either curve the scores or only count points as the difference between players. Some games will have great rolls and everyone will make big bucks. Other games will be punishing and difficult, but since everyone has the same numbers to work from, it's far more fair than many other dice and or pencil games. 
So what about getting this thing? Well, there are some options. You could buy a copy of Gamut of Games, which you should anyway, but the score sheets for Solitaire Dice, Choice, and even the new Can't Stop Express aren't as good as the Extra version. They're fine and you'll enjoy them, but they're just not as good as Extra. But the Extra version is out of print and was never available in the US, so I guess you could buy a used copy or you can print off one of the several score sheets on BGG. If you have a folder with all your roll and write games in it, you need a copy of Extra in there too. Now, if you'd like to try before you buy, some genius, it was me, uploaded a playable Excel file into Extra's file section on BoardGameGeek. Not a wholly original work, but based off an old file someone made using the choice rules. Your boss will think you're working on a spreadsheet. Just remember to keep the browser window where you're rolling dice minimized when other people walk by your desk. As a personal aside, I sort of think that Eagle Griffin republishing Solitaire Dice as Can't Stop Express isn't exactly in good faith. Now, I know they have a bunch of licenses for Saxon games, but presenting this as, quote, from the notebooks of Sid Saxon as essentially a new game is somewhat disingenuous. It's also not really like Can't Stop at all. Extra has significantly more in common with Can't Stop, and again, is the better game. While still a good and fun roll and write game, Can't Stop Express is not going to give you the feeling of playing Can't Stop. So, who should play Extra? People who like rolling dice. People who like tactical disaster mitigation. People who like to min-max people who like pencil games, and people who like to print and laminate score sheets. I give extra, exclamation point, negative 200 out of negative 200 points for games that are basically the same except being slightly better and more fun than other games very similar to them. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. Villagers is a set collection card game that was published in 2019. In fact, it just shipped. I got my copy a couple of weeks ago, and I've been playing it almost nonstop. Designed by Hawk and Garter, who also did the art, and published by Sinister Fish Games, the premise of Villagers is simple. You are the founder of a village. The road brings a continual flow of people with various skills walking past your village. Your goal is to get the best combination of people to stay and make your village the most prosperous. So what does that actually mean? Well, the villagers are cards. The road is a row of six cards which players take turns drafting. After drafting, new villagers settle in your village. That is, you place your new cards in your tableau. And this is where villagers gets fun. Each villager has an ability printed on the card. Some let you draft more cards each round. Some let you place more cards each round. Some let you ignore requirements for other cards. Some give you gold, which is victory points in this game. And some villagers have endgame bonuses, like gold for collecting specific types of cards. These give you something to work towards in future rounds. Each villager also has a suit related to their profession, like ore or wood or grain. And to place them, you have to stack them on top of another villager of the same suit. As the cards stack, the villagers chain in clever progressions. The carpenter stacks on the lumberjack because a carpenter needs wood. The more valuable cards stack in longer chains, like the wine trader, a high-value card, stacks on the vintner, which stacks on the graper. First you grow the grapes, then you make the wine, then you bottle and sell the wine. To add a bit of complication, many villagers have padlock symbols on the cards. That means that when you play the card, another villager gains a two gold bonus. If you already have the villager that gets the padlock bonus, you get to take two gold from the bank. But if one of your opponents has that card, you have to pay them two bucks from your own supply. Like the card chains, the padlock symbols are all clever and meaningful. The vintner owes payment to the cooper because he needs barrels for his wine. And the wine trader owes the glassblower. Of course, you need bottles to sell the wine. 
This combination of card chains and padlocks creates a meaningful, interconnected web of dependent professions that makes villagers so satisfying. It starts to feel like creating a little community of people working together on complementary tasks. The villagers who provide gold pay off twice, in a market phase near the beginning of the game and another at the very end. It was smart of villagers to have the first market phase so early in the game. It creates a tension between short-term and long-term goals that I find so enjoyable. If you get lucky and draw a high-value card early on, you want to get it out before that first market phase. But you don't have many actions early in the game, and with the chaining and padlock requirements, it could take most or even all of your early actions, which could leave you in a weaker position compared to opponents who spent their early rounds collecting villagers who let them draw and play more cards. But on the other hand, if a card is worth a lot of gold, and you get the chance to collect that gold twice, can you pass that up? I love a dilemma like that. It's rare to find a game that plays well with two players and with five, and Villagers does. I will say that at lower player counts, there's less competition for specific cards. You tend to figure out what your opponent is building towards, and just go for something else. Two-player doesn't feel too open or easy, though. You only get through about half to two-thirds of the deck, and if you take a high-value card, there's a real risk that the cards it chains onto might not come out. At five-player, you'll see almost the whole deck, so those cards will probably come out eventually, but chances are much higher that someone else will try to get them, too. The component quality in Villagers is very good, and Gorder's art is terrific. Charming, brightly colored illustrations of the Villagers acting out their professions, from beekeeper to bedbuilder. I appreciate the gender and racial diversity on the cards. It's especially appropriate in a game that's about jobs in a small community. No race or gender holds a patent on work. Throughout history, men of color and women of color have worked all different kinds of jobs. White women and white men have worked all different kinds of jobs. And Villagers reflects that reality. It's nice to see a nod to accuracy here. Villagers comes in a tidy little box about the size of games like Paperback and Burgle Brothers. I have the Kickstarter edition, which comes with thick wooden coins and a mini expansion, and everything just fits in the box. If you buy the game retail, the Kickstarter extras are available on the Sinister Fish website. The mini expansion includes several sets of cards that you can add into the game as you wish. One adds asymmetric player powers, another adds a take that element, and so on. I'll probably never play the take that one, but it might be just the thing for someone who likes high conflict games. The wooden coins don't change the gameplay at all, but they feel really good in your hand, and they come in a nice little box shaped like a crate with a magnetic clasp. Normally at this point in a review, I would mention a few caveats, but I don't really have anything negative to say about Villagers. It's a light to medium weight set collection card game, full of interesting decisions and clever thematic touches, with great inclusive art for a reasonable price. And there's even solo rules, and they're good. With so many gigantic, sprawling games out there, I have great appreciation for a game like Villagers, which plays in about an hour and packs so much fun into a small box. And that's Villagers. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not finding room for a second Cartwright in my village, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Thanks for listening to the 5 by If you'd like to follow us, please do on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild at number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links you can find on 5bygames.com. The 5 by is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at insidevoicesnetwork.com.